Hello, I'm James Holland and this is Chalk Valley History Hit. I'm recording this in October on the 10th anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, a revolution that was down to Vladimir Ilyich Lenin as much as anyone, but also a world-changing event that might so easily never have happened. Catherine Meridel is an award-winning Russian historian and in this podcast tells the truly extraordinary story of Lenin's journey from Switzerland, where he'd been living in exile, back to Russia earlier in 1917. This was a train journey fraught with risk, full of drama, and which involved passing through Germany at a time when the country was still very much Russia's enemy, after three long and brutal years of war. Catherine not only speaks Russian, but relived the same train journey herself. And in what was a bravura performance at the Chalk Valley History Festival earlier this summer, she recounted this epic trip of Lenin's with verve, wit and vividness, demonstrating how the birth of the Soviet Union might well never have happened. Because actually, her talk was not just about the train journey, but also about realigning Lenin at the very beating heart of the revolution. His legacy, as she points out, was shifted by none other than Stalin, his successor, so that he has become, in Soviet and Russian folklore, little more than an embalmed emblem. In this utterly fascinating talk, Catherine Meridel brings back to life the fiery, zealous, vain and monstrous ideologue who absolutely was the beating heart of one of the most significant political revolutions the world has ever seen. Well, hello, and thank you very much for coming. It's such a beautiful afternoon, um, but we will have fun in this tent too, because I'm going to lower the tone. I don't think this should be uh, one of those lectures that gets too footnotey. So I want you to picture an old-fashioned murder mystery. It's Russia we're talking about, after all. And we all know who the victim is. He's Lenin, and he's what the experts call a cold case, because he died 93 years ago in 1924. But death hasn't exactly shut him up. He's probably receiving guests this very afternoon. It's um, actually three hours ahead in Moscow, so he's shut by now. But if you go tomorrow morning, you can see him and check out whether the new suit they fitted him out with last year is uh, still as neat as it was when they laid him back out in it. There won't be much sign of wear. Lying in his glass box in the artificial candlelight, Lenin is meant to inspire us with awe. And he may just do that if you're suggestible. But I'd say that the real effect is more to underline how dead he is. And poor Ilyich has been dead for a long time. He was dead in the 1980s when I did my PhD in Soviet Moscow. His statue in the vestibule of the old Institute of Marxism-Leninism was dead and cold. He was dead in thousands of appalling paintings and very dead indeed in all those busts and posters and those tin buttons that people wore on their lapels. He'd been done in by the time I first dropped in to view his corpse and the question of who done it is the one I'll come back to at the end of my talk. But you and I are all accessories to this historic crime. I was in Malmo not so long ago, 
I was there to visit the hotel where Lenin dined in 1917, and I knew there was a plaque somewhere in the lobby to commemorate the fact. So I went to the woman behind the desk and I said, excuse me, can you tell me where's the plaque that commemorates the visit here of, of Lenin? And she said, Lenin? You mean John Lennon? <laughs> now, what is really interesting about that is, is the fact that she was actually from Moscow, I established a little later. So this is a terrific wake-up call. There's something wrong with Pori Leach. We're fine with Marx, that beard, you know, he looks so grand and masculine. But Lenin really, I think, needs a makeover. And the trouble is that it really is very hard to find much sign of life. I've come to think of myself as a sort of fossil hunter. The Lenin that most of us know is like another famous heap of high-priced bones. The body in the mausoleum is Moscow's answer, they're very competitive after all, to Dippy the Diplodocus, you know, the guy in the Natural History Museum. Like Dippy, he's familiar, he's a landmark, and children are fascinated by him. And he's a nightmare to conserve and costs a great deal to keep in good condition. And finally, just like Dippy, he's totally harmless. But I suspect that the real Lenin, like the real dinosaur, would have been frightening and dangerous. His PR problem is a matter of poor packaging. He's simply not the type of politician that we do these days. He didn't have a fascinating sex life. He didn't have a passion for hiking or breeding newts. He didn't even make jam, as far as I'm aware, and he didn't have an allotment either. Tom Stoppard has a lovely line in Travesties, his play about Zurich in 1917. There's nothing wrong with Lenin, one of the characters says, if you ignore the politics. <laughs> and that's the point, which is why Stoppard makes us laugh. What mattered about Lenin, the only thing that mattered about Lenin, was his political drive. And that can be quite hard to write about. The danger is that you end up writing a smooth and shiny Lenin, the one the Soviets made, plastic, with no interesting cracks. But he wasn't always a head of state. He wasn't always safely stuck in Russia either. When I started to think about reviving him, I wanted to see him struggling a bit somewhere outside his home territory, sometime when he was not a giant superman. And there was something else as well. I don't know how you think of Russia, but most people in this country treat it as a kind of Narnia, where six formers go when they've had enough of Gladstone and Disraeli and the Treaty of Versailles. The wonderful thing about it is that everything is black and white. We know who the goodies and the baddies are. It's like a snow scene. The music is terrific, and the history is like a wicked fairy tale. What's more, we Western Europeans don't have any responsibility for it. We can point fingers, we can blame him and let her off, and we can shrug in despair when it all goes wrong. It's all so reliably foreign and so definitely weird. It's John le Carré's Russia House and Tolstoy's War and Peace. It's a bit of light relief from all the things that are going on outside. But I would like to persuade you that Russia's fate is linked to ours. As well as doing a spot of reanimation on one dead man, then, I'm here to put Lenin's story back into its European setting. What happened to him in life and death is not separate from the history of Europe as a whole. We could start with the First World War. 
Without that, Lenin might never have turned into a household name, let alone a dinosaur. And the war is definitely ours. You've only got to look outside. We can't get enough of it. What happened in the Flanders trenches mattered to the fate of Russia. And decisions taken in London, Paris and Berlin contributed to the shape and fate of Soviet power and through that to our modern world. But I'm getting ahead of myself. More immediately, it was the war that really sparked the first of Russia's 1917 revolutions. It happened in late February or early March, depending on the calendar you use. And in a few days, it had led to the fall of the Romanovs and the creation of a fragile Russian republic based in Petrograd. Revolutions are always violent, and most create more losers than gainers. But for a few weeks, this one was enormously popular. Russia became the freest country in the world, and all its citizens were hopeful, although the problem was they were all hoping privately for different things. And while they were hoping, they had two types of government. The Tsar abdicated on the 15th of March, and for about a day, the country had no rulers at all. Fortunately, there were some guys left over from the old government, the Duma, who were prepared to step into the breach on a temporary basis and form something that was called the Provisional Government, a nervous and reluctant parliament of men in suits. But the workers had been choosing representatives as well. While the gentlemen were arguing in one wing of the main palace, the factories elected a vast, noisy body called the Petrograd Soviet, which met in the other. Its politics were socialist and its manners were rough, but it wasn't bent on seizing power. Its members tended to accept the classic Marxist view that Russia wasn't ready for a workers' state. And that is why they spent the first night begging the men with the monocles to assume power so that they wouldn't have to. It was a complex situation and no way to run a country that was fighting a war. And that is where Lenin is going to come in. If you want to imagine him, think of a small, bald ball of energy and add a beard. He ranted, he paced, he punched the air. He was ecstatic and enraged, firing off letters and telegrams and refusing to sit quiet and wait. He couldn't have been more alive. The trouble was that he was stuck in Switzerland. He was in exile there. And that is how I came to write about the most momentous railway journey of all time. On the 9th of April, 1917, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, scrubbed, packed, and very much alive, set out from the main railway station in Zurich with a group of 30-odd assorted comrades. He was heading for Petrograd, but he had to cross a continent at war. At times, he was quite close to the front lines. In length, his journey was about 3,000 miles. At its most northerly point, it took him into Swedish Lapland, then south through the Finnish lakes and woods. The trains were slow, and he was held up several times. But the journey took him just eight days, and he spent one of those locked in a customs house. Almost 100 years later, and also on the 9th of April, I set out from Zurich to retrace his route. If you can see it in this rather beautiful sunlight, you may not be able to. You can see that it uh, breaks the fantasy that Russia is apart from Europe. 
It's a land-based route. There's only one short sea crossing across the straits between the Baltic coast of Germany and Sweden. And it goes straight through Germany. That was fine for me. There's an express from Zurich to Berlin that covers the route in five hours. But of course, I couldn't take it because Lenin didn't. But Germany was Lenin's greatest problem because Russia was at war with it. There was no legal way for him to travel through without exposing himself to a charge of treason. It was a problem that nearly stumped him for the first few days. He tried, he actually thought of flying, but he was a bit queasy about technology and there was a, a, a huge war going on underneath where he would have had to fly, so not a great idea. If he went west, he thought the British and the French would arrest him. And so he turned over and over in his mind what to do, and it wasn't him who came up with the answer. The big man here was literally that. He's the man on the left in this photograph. They, I say, say the one with the beard, but he's, he's the one with the neat beard. He was a Russian called Alexander Helphand, and he'd made a very large pile of money since the war began by running contraband German goods. He knew where all the back doors were, how to get across borders, how indeed to do business with Germany. I always think of him like the third man, but actually he was more charismatic even than Orson Welles. Helphand dealt in pharmaceuticals and coal. He imported the stuff to neutral countries and then sold it on at sanctions busting prices. A particular speciality was providing the Russian market with contraceptives. So I love to think that Soviet power was built on the profits from German-made black market condoms. And at the end of today, anybody who can make a limerick from that will get a small prize. <laughs> so far, so normal for wartime. But what made Helphand special, apart from his vast wealth, was that he was both a revolutionary and a German agent. His pseudonym was Parvus, though Karl Kautsky's children called him Dr. Elephant. And he was active in the Russian revolutionary scene. This wasn't such a contradiction because he loved Germany and hated Tsarist Russia. In 1916, he even tried to start a Russian revolution of his own, funded by Berlin. It didn't work. He kept the balance of the cash they'd given him. His main base was in Denmark, and he used that for all his many operations, spying, researching, repacking, and exporting German goods. As you can imagine, his staff did a lot of traveling. And one of those, was a maverick called Karl Radek, who also happened to be very close to Lenin. Radek was a talker, the sort who speaks first and thinks afterwards. But his great moment came when the various Russian emigres in Switzerland were discussing how they might get home. And he suggested trying what the Germans might come up with by way of a ticket. It took Lenin six days to come round to the idea. Six days, several changes of negotiator as both the Swiss and Germans got tired of his endless conditions. Lenin spent those days in a permanent state of rage and indecision, blaming everybody but himself, pacing the floor of his dark little apartment and desperately trying to impose his will on circumstances that he couldn't hope to control. The Germans didn't need to help him out. Even the Swiss didn't have to act as go-betweens. He was just lucky to be kicking at an open door. He got his special train because it suited someone powerful to let him go. 
But nothing ever stopped Lenin from creating obstacles when he was cross. And many of you may know about his most famous condition. Lenin was a lawyer, so he came up with the idea that the special carriage should be regarded as an extraterritorial entity. It wasn't actually a sealed train. The doors were open and people did get on and off. But the Russians on board hoped that their fellow countrymen at home would accept, that the would accept the tale that they had no contact with the enemy as they shunted across his country. The fiction didn't fool the Russian government. But the bigger issue was the inconvenience it created for the travellers themselves. The Russians were given a single carriage, which looked exactly like this. For obvious security reasons, they were forced to accept an escort of two German guards. The carriage was divided into compartments, and Lenin had the one at the front. There were four more for the rest of the Russian passengers, and a couple at the back for the luggage and those German guards. The fiction that there was no contact between the Russians and German citizens was preserved by a chalk line drawn across the carriage floor, dividing Russian territory from that of Germany. And a Swiss socialist who was travelling with Lenin, a man called Fritz Platten, was the only person who could step across it. He carried essential messages between the Russians at the front and the Germans at the back. Platten got summoned several times. For instance, the Russians insisted on singing the Marseillaise very loudly all the way up the Rhineland. And since that was a French revolutionary song and they were in a country that was at war with France, they were told to be quiet. But the other consequence was much more serious. There were only two lavatories on board, which might have been almost enough in normal times. But the one at the back was in German territory. 34 Russians had to share the other, which also happened to be right by Lenin's compartment door. Worse, Lenin had banned smoking anywhere except the loo, which soon produced a noisy queue of people wanting to use the thing for its allotted purpose. Inside the cubicle up front, someone, maybe more than one person at a time, always seemed to be puffing away with the door open. And since Lenin's compartment was also at the front, he must have got exasperated by the noise and the queue that formed outside. It took a man of real vision to supply the answer, and Lenin proved his mettle in this case in an unforgettable way. He issued tickets for the lavatory. You got a second-class one if you wanted to smoke, which could be trumped at any time by the first-class ones that people collected, imagine asking, if they needed the thing for biological purposes. Still, noise, especially tittering, was a continuing problem in Lenin's compartment. Radek started a philosophical debate about which of the two physical imperatives, smoking or the other one, should really take priority. And since he happened to be in the compartment next to Lenin's, and he and his friends made a lot of noise that first night, Lenin burst out from his den and announced that sleeping was the communist duty of every true Bolshevik on board the train. Now, I've done the journey in more comfortable times, and I'm amazed that the Russians managed to stay so cheerful. It wasn't just Lenin's bad temper. The worst thing was that the whole time, quite rightly, they feared that they might be taken off that train and shot or hanged. But let's get back to the route. The Russians took three days to get from Zurich to the Baltic coast. They left Germany 
from the port of Zasnitz on Rugen Island. And from there, they had no more need of a sealed train. They crossed by ferry for Sweden, which was neutral in the First World War. And by the time they got to the other side and docked at Trelleborg, very seasick, they were in a country that had no problem with Russians crossing it. They were greeted by their Swedish socialist comrades and taken to that hotel in Malmo for a quick pit stop supper prepared by their, well, paid for by their Swedish socialist friends. The staff at the Savoy in Malmo would remember those Russians for years afterwards, not because they were famous revolutionaries, but because they devoured an entire high-class banquet in a quarter of an hour. This is the dining room today, but I have to warn you that the Savoy became the headquarters of Coopers for a spell in between. So although Lenin was there in 1917, one thinks possibly they refitted it. Finally, the entire party headed north on the stopping train to Sweden, an overnight train from that dining room to this, which is the main train station in Stockholm. This is probably the most famous picture of Lenin on his journey that was ever taken. There he is with his tightly furled umbrella and his wife walking behind him. But what I want you to look at most closely are his boots, which are actually more suitable for the Chalk History Festival than for the leader of a revolution. Because those boots were made by Lenin's landlord in Zurich, who was a cobbler and was very concerned that Lenin was walking in the Alps in the wrong footwear and made him a pair of boots for mountain climbing. And it was Radek who pointed out that mountain boots would not be suitable for the leader of a revolution when he got home. So he took the leader shopping. He took him to Stockholm's famous pub department store and made him buy some decent city shoes and a new suit. When you see statues of Lenin standing at the Finland station and you look at the shoes, they're Swedish. But there was no time to take in the sights. The Russians arrived in Stockholm at breakfast time and they left on the evening train for the north just after 6 p.m. It was spring when they left Zurich. That picture is taken on the 9th of April. It's lovely in Zurich in spring. When they got off the train in the Swedish border town, border town of Haparanda, this was the view that awaited them because they'd gone so far north. Haparanda is on the Gulf of Bothnia, facing Finland across the Tornionjoki River. And in 1917, it was the busiest transport hub in the world. There was no other land route to connect the Western powers, Britain and France, with their ally, Russia. As a result, everything and everyone who wanted to get from one side to the other had to pass this way. That's the sorting office with, as you see, bags heading for Tokyo, Hong Kong and Shanghai. The place was humming with diplomats and military consultants, businessmen, revolutionaries and spies. It was also piled high with crates for eastern-bound supplies from the world's greatest trading nation, that's us, were almost bound to end up here in Haparanda. It was relatively small, so the crates and barrows, barrels created a parallel town around it, often ending up piled on the ice of the frozen river. And it was a great place for speculators, informers, thieves and hitmen. It would have been an ideal place to have disposed of a body or two. 
There was also no shortage of firepower. Vast numbers of guns and ammunition went missing in the woods every night. So what about Lenin? Why did he make it through in one piece? He and his comrades ended up in the customs hut at the Russian border on the 15th of April by the Western European calendar, that is the customs hut. Technically, they were already in the Russian Empire at this point. They'd crossed the river from Sweden into Finnish territory, which is part of the Russian Empire. But they were certainly not home. There was a British officer inside that hut, a man called Harold Gruner, known to his close friends as the spy. Gruner was there because Britain was Russia's ally. That was his cover. But the real job he had that day was to try and stop Lenin from getting back to Russia and interfering with the political course of Russia's war. In theory, he had a pretty free hand. He also had a gun. But he had to be careful not to harm the sensitive relationship between London and the new revolutionary government. Poor Gruner. He did everything he could. He questioned Lenin. He unpacked the bags. There weren't very many of them and they were full of books. He questioned all his fellow travellers. He even strip-searched Lenin, which must have been fun. He asked the same questions over and over. It was all a play for time, while one of his comrades was on the telegraph to Petrograd trying to raise the foreign minister, Paul Milyukov. Because Gruner needed formal permission, or thought he did, if he was going to arrest this wretched Russian citizen. Unfortunately, the 15th of April by the Western calendar, the 2nd of April by the Russian one, was Easter Sunday in Orthodox Petrograd, and Milyukov was out at church. His deputy refused to take responsibility for anything, and eventually Lenin and his friends walked out into the Finnish snow and caught their train southeast to Petrograd. You can ask me about Gruner later if you like. They got there at 11.10 p.m. on Monday the 3rd of April, local time. I think I know how they felt, because when I completed that marathon journey, I was crumpled, tired, and in need of a beer. But Lenin didn't waste time at the Finland station. What happened may have been the stuff of later Soviet legend, but now I've done it, I'm truly impressed. He couldn't have known in advance what his reception would be like. He really did think he was preparing to be arrested. But instead, as he stepped off the train and saw the enormous crowd that was there to greet him, he took immediate advantage. He strode straight past the welcoming committee, elbowing them out of his way, marched outside the station, climbed up onto an armoured car and began to harangue the citizens of Petrograd and then the members of his own party until the small hours of the morning. No beer and no cup of tea. Even when they drove him to their headquarters and tried to get him in to take supper with them, he leaned over a balcony upstairs and harangued yet another crowd on the streets of Petrograd. His message was that everyone had got the politics of revolution wrong. He lambasted the Petrograd Soviet for cooperating with the provisional government. He lambasted his comrades for supporting the continuation of the war. And he called on Russia's frontline troops to fraternize with their enemy and demanded the nationalization of land. He also insisted that all power should pass to the Soviets. I won't repeat the whole speech word for word. It's very short. The April theses are famous for being short. If you know any Russian history, you'll also know what everybody else thought of Lenin, including his wife. They thought he'd gone completely mad. 
But the truth was that Lenin's policy of breaking away from the provisional government and the war was a stroke of genius. In doing this, in opposing the war and standing up against the so-called bourgeoisie, he carved out a unique and distinctive role for his own party. It was unpopular at first, there was a long way to go, but this was the first step to Soviet power. If Lenin hadn't traveled back to Russia on that train, and more or less precisely at that time, the Bolshevik party in Petrograd would probably have split and melted into chaos and obscurity. Instead, Lenin instigated the change of direction that helped reforge it from the bottom up. Without him, there would have been no Bolshevik revolution and no Soviet government as we have come to know it. There would have been no Soviet Union and probably no Cold War. As if all that were not enough, Lenin was also the man who put Karl Marx into government. Without him, the ideas that Marx set out in the Communist Manifesto would almost certainly have remained theoretical. It was Lenin, for better or worse, who transformed them into a system of political rule. But this is the point where I'm at risk of creating another dead Lenin, aren't I? You know, the great man again, we've had enough of that. He had no magic intellectual powers. He was clever, he was ruthless, but he was also very lucky. And to that extent, the responsibility for the Soviet Revolution is, as I said at the beginning, something Europe shares. It's part of our collective history. And let me explain what I mean. First up, Lenin couldn't have returned to Russia at all if it hadn't been for the miscalculations and short-sightedness of established political elites. Here is a member of the establishment. You don't get much more establishment than him, in fact. His name is Arthur Zimmermann, and he was the German foreign minister best known for hatching cunning plots. For those of you who haven't come across him, Zimmermann's other claim to fame was a famous telegram sent to the government of Mexico, inviting them to participate in the war on Germany's behalf in exchange for Arizona, New Mexico and Texas. If this had succeeded, Trump would have had to build his wall a little further north. The telegram was leaked, the British got hold of it, and it was one of the reasons why the United States entered the war on the Allied side. So in many ways, Zimmermann was responsible for Germany's defeat. Nothing daunted by that failure, and in fact inspired by it, because he felt he had to act quickly before the United States Expeditionary Force arrived, Zimmermann allowed himself to be seduced by the idea of Lenin. The lure, of course, was that Lenin might undermine Russia's war effort. This idea wasn't new. The Germans had been sending troublemakers around the world for years. They tried Finns, Georgians, even Irish. They just needed anyone they could use to undermine the Entente. Like the secret services of more recent times, especially those that have occupied, uh, operated in Pakistan and points north, they didn't really care who they were dealing with as long as in the very short term it made trouble for their enemy. They never expected the result they actually got. But the Germans weren't the only people who got their plans wrong. The British and the French had their own obsessions. Very little crossed their minds beyond the need to keep Russia in the war. No other goal or interest remotely competed with that. So when the Tsar was toppled in February, their first thought, our first thought, was to make sure that the new lot stuck it out for the whole war. 
The day after the revolution in Petrograd, a revolution that was bound to change the course of the whole of European politics, a civil servant in Whitehall scribbled a note on a telegram from Russia urging the authorities in London to doctor the news, he used the word dress, so that the British people didn't get any funny ideas. Meanwhile, the priority in Petrograd was to find some decent chaps the British could do business with. No wonder they kept finding the wrong people for a country in revolution. It didn't occur to them that business as usual might not be the best or even a feasible plan for anyone. It's easy to be wise after the event, but it's clear that the idea of persuading people by effective propaganda was still in its infancy before the Bolsheviks took power. They pretty much invented it. The Germans got it wrong over and over again. They dropped leaflets urging Russian soldiers to go home and fight to restore their beloved Tsar. That was a mistake. But the British were no better. Their idea of propaganda was to bombard Russians with literature. And I do mean literature because the man in charge was John Buchan. The head of propaganda in Petrograd was a novelist called Hugh Walpole, and he was supported by the likes of Arthur Ransom. It was all very chummy, but it missed the point completely. As the British military attaché Alfred Knox memorably put it, Walpole is not the man for the job because he doesn't know Russia and is only a novelist and a man with balls is required. Well, whatever else you say about Lenin, he certainly wasn't a novelist. <laughs> the Bolshevik, you got it. The Bolsheviks excelled at propaganda as an art. They pushed it to new limits in the year 1917 and thereafter. It was visual, it was direct, it was often beautiful, and it was rooted in real popular concerns and genuine grassroots language. Good posters aren't cheap to make, and newspapers don't print themselves. We can talk about the Bolsheviks' funding and the rumours of German gold, if you like. But certainly, whatever they got their, wherever they got their money from, they used it to maximum effect when it came to reaching their most important audiences. Finally, though, I do think there were moments when our Lenin had a point. In particular, his views about the world of finance have an eerie ring these days. The shameless triumphalism and sheer rapacity of the British political class doesn't seem to have moved on much since 1917. Back then, with young men dying in droves, the chaps in Whitehall were only concerned with making sure they got a good share of the Russian market. One commentator wrote a book about the opportunities that the revolution seemed to have created, to his mind at least, observing that the new Russia was bound to develop a large and affluent middle class whose members would need British razors and Raleigh bicycles and patent medicines. His choicest comment, written in mid-1918, was that Russia looked set to be a splendid new market for British-made grand pianos. So Lenin's case against the bankers was pretty sound. But being right in that analysis, and even being able to make the case with some impressive poster art, doesn't guarantee that your solutions will work. The idea of the Bolshevik revolution captured one strand in the popular mood in October 1917. But the honeymoon was short, and what came later was mass death, displacement, tyranny, corruption, and political murder. It is our common European story, this, and we can't disown it. But before I open this up for questions, let me briefly return 
to the problem I started with. You'd think that Lenin was a prime candidate for monster status, another Ivan the Terrible, even possibly a Hitler, somebody we can never get enough of. So why is Lenin bland and dull? Who killed our beloved Ilyich? The guilty party has been painted into this picture by N.K. Sokolov. What it shows is Lenin's return to the Finland station. It was painted 20 years later in 1937 for the 20th anniversary. And there is someone famous in the shadows just behind the bald head of the great leader. Apart from Lenin's own face, in fact, the only person you can recognise is Stalin. If you read Pravda's anniversary piece of the same day, you would learn that Stalin had been Lenin's close companion on the last leg of his journey, which was a complete lie. It wasn't Stalin, but Lev Kamenev who travelled up to the Russian border to meet Lenin on that April night in 1917. And the person who was closest to the leader at the time was Kamenev's great friend, Grigory Zinoviev. By 1937, both were dead. In fact, almost everyone who travelled with Lenin on the sealed train found out it affected their life expectancy. As far as Stalin was concerned, you see, the live Lenin was dangerous. It wasn't only that he advocated things Stalin didn't approve of, like international civil war. Nor was the only purpose just to bury awkward secrets, though Stalin certainly made sure to do that when he could. What was really at stake in burying Lenin was something else. The right to define the revolution itself and to claim the sacred fire of people's dreams. For Stalin to be number one, the memory of the real Lenin had to die and then his followers had to be discredited one by one. If you want to test how well this worked, even poor old Leonid Brezhnev looked more lively than Lenin towards the end of his life. And the real Lenin is still dead. There are no plans to put him centre stage in Russia in this big centenary year. His presence at the anniversary celebrations would be explosive. It would remind people, for instance, how you can take power by going out onto the streets and simply claiming it. It would rock the boat of sacred empire by reminding, for instance, the Ukrainians that Lenin advocated national self-determination for peoples. Which is why 2017 is turning into a good year for the Romanovs and the murdered Tsar. And there's a lot in the press about victims and the need for national reconciliation in Russia. They've even built a new cathedral in Moscow. But you're not going to find very much about Lenin anywhere. He's going to be the skeleton at the feast this year, the unquiet ghost. Look for him if you look at the Russian press and remember that dinosaur. Because if there's any sign that he's coming back to life, we'll all need to rethink our plans. Okay. Now. I'm delighted to take questions. I'm going to have some help here from Charlotte. But would you please wait till you get the mic before you start to speak? Thanks. I found that very interesting. Could I just ask 
two, as it were, supplementary things. One, Trotsky was detained by the British at Halifax, Nova Scotia, which showed that you didn't actually have... The British didn't, weren't only having problems with Russian jurisdiction. They, didn't, they rather fluffed that one. But there's a broader question. Uh, you suggest that it's essentially the German Foreign Office... Um, I'm not necessarily disagreeing with that, but, but could I add a reading? German military intelligence, I think, also was part of the parcel. And I think in particular, the Germans knew what the Japanese military intelligence had done in 1905. The Japanese had played a big role, as was generally believed, in supporting the revolution that year. And is it not the case that, in part, the Germans were trying to do a reprise of what the Japanese had done? Thank you. They, they were trying to, the Germans were trying to do anything they possibly could. It wasn't just revolution, they, as in Marxist revolution, that they wanted to foment. They tried fomenting jihad in the Caucasus, which you know, not something that hadn't happened in 1905. They tried fomenting, uh, uh, they tried to create a Finnish National Liberation Army, and they did quite well with that. The Finns, as we all know, are very good at forming armies and fighting and especially fighting Russians and they were doing pretty well uh, with with the Finnish National Army as we also know they were working in the Middle East they were working around Constantinople there was a sort of conflict with uh, Lawrence of Arabia there were questions about what was going to happen to Suez and India there was even a rumor that Lenin had agreed that if he seized power with German help he would actually supply troops to help take India for Germany which was an interesting idea so German military intelligence had its own agenda Zimmermann had his own agenda. They were all working sometimes together and sometimes not together. And they didn't always coordinate. The budgets didn't necessarily come from the same box. So that's the answer to your second question. To your first question, one of the problems with detaining Trotsky was that the Russian government demanded he be released. So it wasn't the, the uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia jurisdiction that fluffed. The Russians said, if you don't release him, he is a Russian citizen, you must allow him to go back home. The British thought they were going to be able to hold him indefinitely. Oh, thank you. Um, you talk about degeneration of the Russian Revolution to awful tyranny, really. Uh, do you think that happened from day one, or was it after the Kronstadt Rebellion, or, and did Lenin lead, lead on to Stalin? A bit of a tangent for what you're talking about. Just checking the time <laughs> before I answer that. There are all sorts of answers to that, of course. Um, at the time of the October Revolution, there is no doubt there was a huge groundswell of support for the Bolsheviks. There was a honeymoon period, six, eight weeks, no question about it. And that honeymoon was based on opposition to the war, opposition to the provisional government, enthusiasm for what people regarded as the big men, because Bolshoi in Russian means big, Chelovyek means person, and people didn't understand Bolshevik as the majority party, but as the big people. These are going to represent us, these are going to fight our corner against all the things that are going wrong. But of course, if you seize power at a time of revolutionary degeneration, the revolution itself was falling apart, Russia was falling apart, it was fighting a war that it was losing, its economy had collapsed. In the countryside, the farming you know, economy was also collapsing, it was in a terrible state. And so, seizing power at that time, and promising all sorts of things. You couldn't possibly deliver them. Why does Jeremy Corbyn? Never mind. Um, so there is a real problem for Lenin, even assuming that he'd been a different person. 
And then there was the problem that the world revolution didn't happen. Lenin seized power on the premise that what would follow the Bolshevik revolution in Russia would be a socialist revolution in Germany, a copycat revolution inspired by Russia, and then there would be socialist revolutions across the entire planet. That was the idea. He went on believing that until he died in 1924. Of course it didn't happen, and when it didn't happen, the Russian revolution was essentially doomed to in some way or other compromise those original dreams, leave aside the collapse of the economy. And so the story from 1917 onwards is one of increasing disaster as far as Russia is concerned, and Russians. The personal stories that you read of human beings caught up in that revolution show just what politics can do to real lives to people whose families were divided, to people who never saw their homes again, to people who were moved here and there, people who were shot. It, it's a terrible story. And it's not entirely down to Bolshevism. It's down to the revolution and the failure of the world revolution and the First World War and poverty and czarism and violence. I could go on all afternoon, really. But it's debatable. You know, It could be debated for a long time, that question. Is it on? Yes, it is on. If Lenin and Stalin spell their name with an I-N, could you explain why Corbyn says why? <laughs> uh, because he's no relative. It's a completely different route, uh, philologically. So, so I, I think you'll have to just relax on that one. And the beard is different. The beard is totally different. And the politics too, actually. Could you... Could you tell us what happened to Lenin in the years before he died, between 17 and 24? Because that's very interesting. And where did he die and why did he die and so on? Okay. Well, Lenin, of course, immediately upon seizing power, became the supreme head of, the Soviet, of, of Russia. The, it was the Russian Empire at that point, not the Soviet Union. He was the leader of the Bolshevik Party. The Bolshevik Party had taken power in its own name in the short term. It was not committed to sharing power with the other socialist parties, although it did in, on a very limited basis for a very short time. And within months, what Lenin had to do was to fight a civil war on many fronts. Because, as I said to the previous speak, uh, questioner, the Russian Empire was collapsing. People had had many dreams in the February Revolution that had not been realised. And by the autumn of 1917, they were impatient to see their dreams come true in some way and to find the person to blame for them not coming true, to organise, to protect themselves. So there were white armies, red armies, there were black armies, green armies, the whole place became a sort of firestorm of disappointment and violence. And somehow or other, Lenin's party managed to hold on to power and reconstruct the state through that. And in 1921, he was the leader of something called the Soviet Union, something that actually held together for the next 70 years. And that in itself was an achievement, whatever you think of the methods by which he did it. But he was exhausted. He'd moved the capital to Moscow, so he was now living in Moscow, which was a city he didn't like. He was living in the Kremlin in apartments, which he also didn't like. He had a special little room built on the roof so he could take the air in the evenings. And he spent a lot of his time recovering from his exhaustion at a requisitioned mansion out in the countryside. The mansion had belonged to a doctor and Mrs... Now I can't remember. Was it Blankin? 
they were, they were not particularly distinguished people, but they had their house seized by the Bolsheviks and taken over as Lenin's retirement, sort of nursing home, essentially. He then had a couple of strokes. He was the leader of the Soviet Union. He was consulted on absolutely every uh, political decision that was taken through the construction of the new policy, the construction of the new government, the repression of opposition. But he had a stroke in 1922, which rendered him partially paralysed. And then he had a couple more, and he died in January 1924, pretty much having been unable to communicate for six months before that. So it's a very sad story from the point of view of Vladimir Ilyich. He was not poisoned, as far as we know. And there are stories that he died of syphilis, which are completely unsubstantiated. We simply, he may have had syphilis, but he didn't die of it, as far as we know. Uh, yes, thank you for a fantastic talk. Um, you present Lenin as a sort of heroic spark of the of the Bolshevik Revolution, the, the person that sort of started it all. Um, why do you think now there is so, so, so much of a bigger cult of Stalin in the Soviet Union than of Lenin? Well, I was trying to explain that in my talk, really. It's Stalin who did it. I mean, if he, he's the one who lived longer. <laughs> he got the last laugh. Um, what Stalin did was to collect all Lenin's papers. So he sent agents out to Europe after Lenin's death in the 1920s to buy up every single document that could be found relating to Lenin's life. Founded the Institute of Marxism-Leninism, which then became the Institute of Marxism-Leninism-Stalinism, in which all these documents were locked and doctored for the rest of his life and then for the rest of the lifetime of the Soviet Union, doctored the biography of Lenin to make him into this perfect figure, this perfect dead figure. And Lenin's tenure as head of the Soviet Union was relatively short. The architect of the modern Soviet Union, of collectivization, of the victory in the great patriotic war, of industrialization, of the purges, that is Stalin. And so he's the figure who we see more of and know more about. Lenin's rather a transient figure in that particular firmament. What is really eerie now, I mean, you may not like either of them, I'm not suggesting you should, but what is eerie now is that in Russia there is absolutely no cult of Lenin. I mean, there are people who won't let the corpse be removed from the mausoleum, but that's about it. But there are many, many people who think Stalin was a great leader and a good manager and are prepared to forget the atrocities, the murders, the millions of deaths that were perpetrated under his leadership and to, to see him as a good figure. Hi. Um, uh, I wondered how uh, Lenin spent his time in Zurich and you referred to how long he'd been there, who he mixed with. You referred to Stoppard's play. Are there any truths to who oh. he met like James Joyce and the Dardos? Right, okay. Well, he lived in a, a, a very small apartment in a, in a street called Spiegelgasse. And at the bottom of Spiegelgasse was the restaurant, the cafe, Voltaire, where the Dada movement formed, essentially, and where they were every night doing their thing. Did Lenin go? No. Lenin was not a Dada person. I think he would probably have found it extremely distracting. As a young man, he had enjoyed a number of things. Smoking, chess and music were his great passions. And he gave them all up because they distracted him from the cause of revolution. Smoking he gave up partly because his mother told him to. Chess he gave up because you, made, you have to think about it and you have to be good at it and you have to win. 
And unless you put a lot of effort in, you can't win. And he couldn't bear not to win, but he also couldn't bear to put the effort in because he wanted to make the revolution. And music, he said, makes you feel all soft and soppy and you actually should be willing to hit people over the head. So he wasn't prepared to listen to his favourite Beethoven. What he did then was he spent a lot of time in the Zurich Public Library, which is still there, and had only just been built as a sort of temple to bourgeois reading. It's a beautiful building, very comfortable to work in, and only five minutes' walk from his apartment. He certainly didn't spend time having cordon bleu dinners because Krupskaya couldn't cook, and the apartment was full of the smell of bratwurst boiling in the yard outside the back window, so they couldn't open the windows. It was dark, it was steamy, depressing. But there he sat, writing his great work, the um, imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism, which was the justification for taking power in Russia, essentially, and was based on hundreds of works in five different languages, including ancient Greek, and based on hours and hours of research and many, many conversations with Russians, mainly. Um, so he wasn't given to the sort of Marta Hari, James Joyce, Romain Roland life I would have liked to live in Zurich. He was in the other cafe. And they had Russian tea. They didn't have booze, I think. The only pastime that he shared with me and possibly with some of you was hill walking. He very, you know, on the days the library was closed, but only on the days the library was closed, he used to go walking in the mountains with a bar of chocolate, fruit and nut. <laughs> Um, you've talked about how Lenin has sort of been ignored um, in the 100th anniversary of the revolution this year. What do you think the case will be in 2024 when it comes to the 100th anniversary of his death? How will Russia and how will historians remember him for that anniversary? Or will that itself be brushed under the carpet in the same way? I couldn't possibly tell you, could I? Because it depends who's in power. Um, so you then have to answer the question, will Mr. Putin still be in power in 2024, which is a, a gloomy question to consider. But if so, then I think then one of the questions will be, is it time to move him out? Because it's inconvenient that he's right under Putin's office window. I mean, this is not what you want outside your window if you've converted your office into a Swiss. It's sort of chrome and grey and smoke glass and it's very, very posh, Putin's office. And outside is this thing with Lenin in it and a crowd of people. It's just not what, you know, not. So he has tried, he did try to sort of raise the possibility that it might be time to move Illich out. And there was such a protest that he couldn't do it. But if public opinion could be moved around and maybe it's time to lay him to rest. I could imagine that being one of the things they do because that would actually shut him up for good. But if not, then they'll just have to leave him there. And possibly, the trouble is, the people who support Lenin, the, people, the, the old communists, they're mainly in the provinces, they get offended out in their province, somewhere out on the Pacific coast. They can cause a lot of trouble locally and they have done. So Putin's got to watch that. But it'd be interesting to see. We can, you know, be, all be back here in 2024 and talk about it. Thank you very much for a wonderful talk. In a recent exhibition on the, at the British Library on the Russian Revolution, there is a wonderful letter from Lenin asking for a very um, polite letter to the director of the British Library, posing as Jacob Richter yeah. and asking whether he could spend some time in the British Library. Can you tell us just a little bit about the time he spent in London? Yes, of course. He, he, the, the house he lived in is no longer there. 
um, he and Krupskaya. It's in a street that was knocked down to make way for the King's Cross development, I think. But he came to London partly because it, he liked the idea of the British democracy as a, as a, as a background for his own conspiracy. You know, we, British government policy towards immigrants was not repressive, so he could get on with it. There was posted to watch him a special branch officer who at one point hid in a wardrobe in the pub where Lenin held a meeting and was utterly horrified by what he heard and reported to his bosses that that man that he could hear was the most frightening politician he'd ever heard in his life. But for the most part, Lenin was left alone to get on with you know, what leaders of opposition fractions in the Marxist movement generally do, which is go to the British Library and study. He had a favorite desk. And after he seized power, apparently the director of the reading room said, whatever happened to that nice Mr. Richter? So, you know, he did, he did make an impact as a good person and a sensible reader. He learned English. So he went to Speaker's Corner quite a bit and listened to people. And he learned something about rhetoric by watching them. And he met a number of people. It was a good place for Europeans to come at the point when he was there, which was before the war broke out. And they held one of their meetings there. They had originally met in Brussels, the Bolsheviks, to have one of their political meetings. But they held it in an old wool warehouse. And they realized that they were all being attacked by fleas from the old wool. So they had to move to London very quickly. And that was the first Lenin actually went there. But he did the same things in London as he did in Zurich. Conspiracy, eating chocolate, going for walks, not much liking the countryside. He thought it was a bit depressing compared with what he was kind of looking for and um, getting on with it, really. By the time Lenin entered Petrograd, what was the position of the provisional government at that time? Uh, did Kerensky uh, resign immediately? Or what, was the, what was the situation during the intervening time? In April? Yes. When Lenin came back in April, the provisional government was actually in quite a good position because initially its big problem was how are we going to wage this war? Are the workers and soldiers going to back us? And there was a real danger that there might be mass desertions from the front or a strike of workers which would prevent, for instance, trains with materiel going to the front to supply the front lines. The provisional government managed to persuade some of the leaders of the Soviet to work with it. And there were one or two in particular, who were Mensheviks for the most part, who were prepared to work alongside the provisional government for the duration of the war to bring the war to an end that wasn't humiliating for Russia. And the way it was presented to the Soviet was, look, that's the Kaiser. You know, he's going to crush your revolution. You've got to defend your revolution. We'll worry about annexations later. We'll worry about our treaty obligations later. But for the time being, we must make sure our revolution isn't crushed by those Prussians. Kerensky at that point was actually operating on both bodies. He was in the Soviet, in the executive of the Soviet, and he was in the provisional government, which, strictly speaking, was illegal. The Soviet had, had decided early on that that shouldn't happen. When Lenin got back, he was attacked immediately by people in the provisional government who said, this man is a troublemaker. Kerensky, in particular, hated him because he knew him. But it took another two or three months for this to come to a head. And what brought it to a head was the Russian uh, offensive in June 1917. The provisional government managed to persuade 
the army and the Soviet to back a new offensive against the Austrians and Germans in Galicia. And it collapsed totally. And at that point, there were riots on the streets. The provisional government almost crashed and Kerensky became the new leader of the provisional government. So that's where Kerensky fits in. The man who was the darling, the sweetheart of all the women of Petrograd. He was their sweetheart from February until about November. People swooned when he gave lectures. He was showered with, where are they? He was showered with flowers whenever he spoke in public. He was just the most remarkable sort of, I was used to say the sort of Barry Manilow of the revolution. Um, but like Barry Manilow, he is no more. <laughs> Reading very recently about the two revolutions in 1917, one of the main causes was the lack of food, um, the, people, the women on the streets. Now, what did Lenin do, because there was still lack of food um, after he got into power, what did he do that the Tsar and also the provisional government did in stopping a revolution? Well, he had something called the Cheka. He org very, very early on, he organized something called the Extraordinary Commission, uh, which is Cheka in Russian, which was the secret police, essentially. And their first job was to prevent speculation in foodstuffs and to annihilate opposition, which might, of course, have caused another revolution. The next thing he did was to requisition food, to requisition gold from citizens. A lot of people fled at the time of the October Revolution, a lot of rich people in particular. And so he organized the um, mass international sale of Russian artworks, icons, church goods, um, art collections by people who'd left the country and people who hadn't, melting down of gold and silver, selling it on international markets. The international price of gold went down really significantly in 1918 as a result of the flooding of the markets with Russian gold and gemstones to supply the revolution not only with food, but also with weapons and with all the things that Lenin needed to build his new state. But did he actually solve the problem? No. I mean, by 1921, people were starving. There were people eating their you know, children. That was terrible, the famine of 1918 and 19. At the time when that man in London was saying, Russia will be a good market for grand pianos, people were actually eating children. It was absolutely horrific what was going on. There were cholera epidemics, typhus epidemics, dysentery mass migration of people across the country, so he didn't solve it. But where do you go when you've had a revolution and another revolution and you're weary? Where do you go? How do you organise another uprising? You can only go right, and of course there were right-wing oppositions to Lenin, but he crushed them.